This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts Podcast with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night? And then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports. No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com, get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. I have a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's gonna come true, baby. They think that we're through, but baby, you'll be swept. You'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on a plate. Starting here, starting now. Honey, 
tell you about Patti Lapone's new album, which I have had the pleasure of listening to and I am obsessed with. She recorded it live in her hometown of Northport, Long Island. It's called Don't Monkey with Broadway, and this is a homecoming in every way. Patti's first album in five years, it's a double disc that not only covers her greatest hits, but also songs that she's never done before, and they are all stamped with her incredible signature Patti Lapone style. And the CD package is full of these incredible photos from her high school years. It's like looking at her diary, and this is a must for every theater fan on the planet. It's available from Broadway Records on iTunes or Amazon, or you can just go to broadwayrecords.com, anywhere that you get music. But you must get Don't Monkey with Broadway. It's tremendous. Hey, everybody. My guest today is the multi-Tony Grammy and Olivier Award-winning actress, Patti Lapone. Patti has had a career on the stage, on film, and on television that has earned her the reputation as an actress of profound integrity, passion, and talent. She was part of the first graduating class at Juilliard and went on to perform with the infamous acting company begun by its founder, John Hausman. She created the role of Fantine in the original London production of Les Miserables, and some, and I mean some, of the illustrious Broadway credits under her belt include War Paint, an evening with Patti Lapone and Mandy Patinkin, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Gypsy, Sweeney Todd, Noises Off, Masterclass, Patti Lapone on Broadway, Company, Anything Goes, and Evita. She's a longtime collaborator with David Mamet, both in his plays and in movies. She has starred in countless films and television shows, which garnered her multiple Emmy nominations and other awards. She can be heard on cast recordings and solo albums, including her most recent Don't Monkey with Broadway. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Patti Lapone, a memoir. She's an activist, a wife, a mother, and playing her sister in Just Looking was a magical moment for me in my career. And if you ever have the opportunity for this woman to call you doll, <laughs> welcome Patti Lapone to the podcast. Thank you, Ilana. It's so great to see you. It's you so look beautiful. Too bad it's audio. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're really robbing the listeners of of a visual feast. Indeed, by we not are. seeing me today, <laughs> I would like to say the same about you. And it is such an honor that you are choosing to spend some time with me today. Because well, you know how much I love you. I we love bonded you on that film. I want to go back, actually, past a few years ago where we got to do that film because something in you, at a very young age, fell in love with performing, and. It has sustained you through a very long career with great highs and great trials. But every time I see you, the passion and love for storytelling and doing your best to tell that story in your own singular way, it feels so alive to me and so immediate as if you just auditioned for Juilliard. And so thank you. let's talk about that. You are from Northport. I'm from Northport, Long Island. I am. Tell me about your family. Well, my dad was principal of an, the only elementary school when I was growing up, and my mom was a housewife. And my mom enrolled me in a ballet class after 
I wasn't even in kindergarten yet. I think it was, I was four years old. And I fell in love with the audience. And I think that that's the thing that inspires me every night. I will look at the audience if I can. If the set allows it, I'll look at the audience before we start the play so that I can judge who I'm playing to. And, of course, I will always find the one that I've got to convince, the one that doesn't want to be there. I mean, I don't know why my eye goes there, but it does. And then in the course of war paint, I can look out at the audience in the top of the second act um, in uh, Necessity is the Mother of Invention because the light is off me and it's on Christine and I can really see who's (laughs) out there. (laughs) I can really see who's out there. And, you know, and I write in a little notepad what I think of the audience every night. So the prop that's out there, you can write in it. And in in another scene, and I write every night what (laughs) I think of the audience. Do you do that for every play, if that's possible? I don't write what I think of them, but I do look at the audience. I always look at the audience, because that's who I'm playing. You talked about the passion and the love. Well, it's the storytelling, I'm telling them. And that's why I like to look at them, because I want to Feel the immediacy of them as opposed to the darkness. Obviously, when I rule the world, I can also control uh, every audience member and who they are and what they're doing during my play. But how do you not get distracted or stay on task in terms of telling the story if you feel like it isn't the most appreciative audience on the planet? You know, I'm working with wonderful actors in this show in War Paint, and John Dossett and I work a lot together, and Doug Sills. Christine and I only have one scene at the very, very end. It's funny, right? <laughs> right, great. right, but that's... <laughs> but we actually talk about when we don't have a receptive audience, we go back to the script, and we go back to investigating the character and the scenes, and it keeps it alive that way as well, as opposed to coming off stage bitching about them. We do come off stage and bitch about them. But when we're on stage, we are reinvesting in a rehearsal of the scene, which is great because things blossom. Things um, are rethought and um, reinvestigated. So this year, I have had so many guests who went to Juilliard, and I know that it's the 50th anniversary of Juilliard. You were the first class. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean exactly when you finish your childhood in Northport and decide that you want to study professionally. What was Juilliard before that? Juilliard was primarily, it was the, the Juilliard School of Music, and it had dance. It had dance and, of course, in, you know, individual instruments and orchestra, and I'm wondering if it had composition or conducting. It did right. not have jazz. In order for it to move down to Lincoln Center, it needed to be a complete performing arts wing, so they added the drama division. And our first year was at the old school, 122nd Street and Claremont Avenue, but it was so jammed that our classes were in the hallways and the gymnasium of the International House, which is a dormitory for international students. And Michel Saint-Denis and John Hausman created the theory that was applied to the first year, and I think maybe... For 20 years, I'm not quite sure how long, that Bible of applying European and Russian techniques on American actors so that the American actor um, was capable of a great many different styles. Mm -hmm. And it was intense. It was unbelievably intense. And John picked 36 of the craziest people he could find that first year. 
And ultimately, in our fourth year in graduation, we had 17 of the original 36. There were attempted suicides. Um, people left because when you think of kids auditioning to act at the Juilliard School coming off a farm in Minnesota and the schools in Harlem and you have to deal with the brutality of the training and then the brutality of the streets of Manhattan, it wiped out a lot of the our best actors wiped out a lot of our best actors because they just couldn't handle that. I was, I'm was i a New Yorker. I had lived in the city for a year. I was situated. I knew the streets. But it was very difficult. And the 70s, it was dangerous. Kathleen Quinn and I got mugged on Riverside Drive and 120th Street. And there were no streetlights. And uh, somebody came behind Kathleen and grabbed her in the crotch. And I screamed. And he slugged me, and then I turned into a she-lion and cra- uh, um, chased him across the street back into um, the park <laughs> like yeah. an idiot. But, you know— Well, your instinct kicks yeah, in. The inst- and- yeah. Um, every day I act, the technique that I learned pays off, exposes itself. And they said that at school. They said, learn the technique and then forget it. And the technique was drilled into us. It was, It was— Hard and boring a lot of the time. I was also kind of wacky and wild. It was New York City. Uh-huh. In the that, 70s, let's repeat when we're talking yeah. about, right? And I was free. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily want to go to school. I got in, not because I wanted to go, but I got in. And then it was What do you the, mean? Well, my audition, because my brother had gone to the dance division and told me they were, they were starting a drama division, and I auditioned for my mother and my brother, not really caring. Then when I got there, I was thrilled to be there. It still was, you know, I was young. Were you and, not planning on going to no, study? No. You I, wanted to start your career? Yeah. I just wanted to, you know, pound the pavement. But I was really glad when I was there. But it was, like I said, it was a very brutal environment. The head of the school hated the actors. We were, and we were on a tri-semester and everybody else was on a double semester. And I remember in the cafeterias, if we went down to the cafeteria, these these musicians would look at us as, as if we were aliens they didn't know who we were. The only person that came to watch any of the drama division's productions was uh, Jimmy Conlon, who is now maestro of the Los Angeles Opera. And he was our mascot. He was at every single production that we did. There were dancers. The only ensembles that were are, that are formed at Juilliard are the acting department and the dance department. The rest are individual studies. And we were on the same floor with the dancers. And so we bonded with the dancers, but none of the musicians or the singers, the opera singers. And we were also crazy. So the crazy people were, crazy people were running around the hallways, you know, shouting out uh, vocal exercises. And these musicians and these opera singers were horrified. And so we intensified. Sure. sure. Exactly. <laughs> we intensified the assault. Yes, as well you should. <laughs> Who were some of the people in class with you? David Ogden Stiers and Kevin Klein. Those would be names that people would know. And they were called advanced students. And we all looked at each other, advanced in what? (laughs) If the story is true, I started dancing and Bobby fell in love with the costume. So Bobby started dancing um, in this extracurricular activity program after school. And I fell in love with the audience. I have no idea what Bobby fell in love with, but I fell in love with the audience. And What do you mean by that when you say that? I don't know what his motivation was. No, to what stay. do you mean when you say I fell in love with the audience? Oh, I thought I, thought, I thought I literally, and I've said this ad nauseum. 
I couldn't get in trouble on the stage. I am fearless on the stage, and I am scared out of my mind in my life. Mm-hmm. But when I hit the deck, when I'm on the on stage, I feel as though whatever the director wants me to do, I will and can do. But, you know, that doesn't apply to my life. Mm-hmm. So and th- that's not a reason that I'm on the stage. But I, th- the audience was smiling at me, and I really thought, I can't get in trouble up here. I can do whatever I want, and mm-hmm. they'll still smile at me. Those were the words that went through my head at four years old. I've never forgotten it. And then, of course, you fall in love with your teachers, and you fall in love with these silly little routines, and you fall in love with the sequins. Yeah. I will never forget the Miss Marguerite dance studio. The mothers, and you know, that had their daughters in this dance school, and we would give recitals, sewing sequins on the costumes, individual sequins on costumes. Right. It'd be a little sewing circle for like the couture, mothers. Like couture, right? Like yes. if you think of the, what goes <laughs> into right. that, right? Like exactly. that kind of craftsmanship. Oh, and... It was unbelievable. <laughs> then when I moved from Miss Marguerite's dance studio to the Andre and Bonnie dance studio, and we started performing all over Long Island in Kiwanis clubs, and we performed in New York at the Piccadilly Hotel. I mean, we were in show business. Yeah, as five kids. Amazing. As kids. And my mother wasn't a stage mother. She was horrified that we had taken this path. But when my mom and dad got divorced, she threw herself into her kids. And she she drove us to our dance classes. She drove us to our music lessons. How old were you when they got divorced? Um, I think it was 12. It was long. It was protracted. So it was a... Terrible. Very, uh, yeah, it was a lot, very uncomfortable. I think 7 to 12. It was a long time. It was like... And then my brothers were freaked out, and they went, what are you talking about? We're free. He wanted us to be teachers. Do you know what I mean? And, it, you know, he was he was kind of dictatorial. I loved my dad, but, you know, things happen. And But, you know, my, my brothers, I think, were more freaked out. And I thought, this is the freedom that allows you, Bobby, to be the dancer you want to be. Yeah. And allows me to, you know, do what I want to do. You know? And do you mean because for your father and a man of that generation, having a son as a dancer wasn't his vision for his son or Probably, did he no. not get the arts period as a, as a as a career idea no i don't know whether he didn't get the arts as a career idea he wasn't around long enough basically for that but he did i remember him saying he wanted us to be teachers and really that's it with all early choices <laughs> with all this talent what are you blind <laughs> come on zigfield just told me i got a shot um did you stay in your home mm mm-hmm. mhm and was he mom your... got the house. <laughs> Good for mom, as well she should. Exactly. He was the principal at the school you went to. Yeah. No. Oh well. Then the second elementary school. Yes, but and that was traumatic because it was traumatic. Oh my um, gosh. There was a second elementary school built as Suffolk County became a very fast-growing community, and we lived closer to that elementary school. So I went to Norwood. I went to. Ocean Avenue from kindergarten to third grade and then fourth through sixth. But I when they split North. up, you got to go to a different school where he was not the principal. But I, that was before they split up, I think. Okay. Yeah. Because that, that would have been... Yeah, it was... It's hard <clears> to have <throat> a parent in your school regardless of the well, circumstances. And, and back then when divorce was unheard of and they were Catholics and excommunication and just excommunication from your circle, let alone your church... Did you feel it? Did you feel? Mom sh- felt it. Did you feel shame being the child of this no, situation? I, no, because I was always a sort of an outsider. Anyway, I always felt yeah outside of the block, outside of the circle. You know, I did. I never felt as though I um, belonged. Um, 
I was always getting in trouble for something. And then I that was very early on in my life. And I thought, well, this is, okay, I'm going to have to figure out these waters because whatever I'm doing is wrong. Was there anyone that you had to talk to about that stuff at the in, time? In junior high school, but not until then. Not until then. It's a it, long time yeah. to feel alone. Yeah, it is. But then my music teacher, who was my inspiration and my muse, and who's still alive, she's going to be 97 or 98 this year, understood me understood this, you know, this wild energy that needed focus. I was focused in the desire to remain um, on stage, but <laughs> every place else, it was all over the place. So what? I had energy. <laughs> it sounds like whatever happened, you had a mom who was really devoted to getting you to the places where you could feel that joy and get and bring you there, literally bring you there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it wasn't perfect, Mm-mm. <laughs> but you're sitting in my podcast booth today, so she did something right. No, Patty she LePone. did. Do no, you agree? She did. she did. She was my mom was funny. My mom was <laughs> when I was doing Evita. There were a lot of strange people coming into the sphere, and this one guy, you know, mom's listed in Northport. This one crazy guy found my mother, and when I found out my mother was talking to this guy, I went, Mom. This is a crazed fan of mine. He is not. He's my friend. I know. Oh, my God. Oh, my okay. God. And you may have this stalker. That's fine. I have others. <laughs> what? So she. Yeah. So what does that mean? Like well, she suddenly was like, you know what? I kind of like the attention. Yes, I think that was it. Mm-hmm. I think that was it. But it was scary because this guy was crazy. This guy was, you know, found me wherever I was and pulled me out of rehearsal with emergency phone calls, and he was still in high school. And when my mother was dying, called the nursing home. I don't know how he found us, but he did. Um, He has stopped, thank God. But she also famously said to my brother and I, I don't understand why you flit from job to job. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, Ma... That's life. That's the way it goes in our business. Are you I think familiar? she wanted us to be one of those Les Mis actors right. <laughs> to get fired after yeah. 10 years. Yeah, you must oh. go. The costume, no... Yes. Right. Um, the character is 25. <laughs> well, you seem to know, speaking of Les Mis and not staying, you seem to have a very keen intuition about not staying too long. And and knowing, you know, there there's a story that that you were asked to come to New York mm-hmm. with Les Mis. Mm. I mean, you I mean, there's so many stories, so you can confirm or deny. But it is my understanding that they wanted you to do Fantine in America, and that you were like, "I've done it. It doesn't get better than this." Right? Is that true? Is that what happened? True. And it was the second week at the Barbican. The London Theater the, where you were doing yes, it. Yes, it's the home of the it was the home of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and it was the second week that we had we were in previews or opened. I can't remember, but I was in my barricade uniform, and I went to the stage door to drop off a note for someone that was coming to the show. And I saw Cameron McIntosh, and I said, "Cameron, I can't do this in New York." This was two weeks into the run. He said, "I understand the the, the part's too small." I said, "No, that's not it," and I didn't figure he would understand what it was was a perfect environment. I, it, it, it was why I'm on stage. It was a perfect company and a perfect musical and a perfect theater, which reminded me of Juilliard. And I thought, this is my company. This is my experience. And all we have is 
our experience and the memory of it. And I thought if I go to Broadway, I won't have Alan Armstrong. I won't have Roger Allen. I won't have – I'll have Com Wilkinson. I'll have Francis, but Francis Raphael, but I won't have Sujan Tanner. I, I won't have this company of Brits that I adore that honored – me by allowing me to be in this company. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, that's what I want to ask you because my understanding is that you finish at Juilliard. You're part of this incredible acting company, which is was part of the vision. We're going to hire these. We're going to let in this amazing group of kids to the school, and then they're going to be a repertory company. And you travel all over the U.S. doing plays, and then you're in London doing The Cradle Will Rock, Will Rock yeah. also with the acting company, mm-hmm. correct? That was, a, that was a revival. That was a alumni. Of okay. The, of the um, of the school. How was it? And and you got nominated for that show as well. You're so young when this is all happening. How is it that you are the one American pluck to be in the the London company of Les Mis? What were you doing in that show? Well, it it happened because Cameron McIntosh produced Oliver in New York. Okay, which me, had been before, right? And and saw me in the Nancy costume and said I would be perfect for a role. In his up next his upcoming musical with the RSC, and I said, where, when? He said, London, nine months. I said, well, that takes care of that. They couldn't find a Fantine. He saw my picture in a, new, a London paper. I don't know why, but he saw my picture. This is, well, it's after Evita, so I must have had some sort of, I don't know, reputation in London. Who knows? But he saw my picture in the um, paper. You won the Tony for Evita, and right. you were very famous and had <laughs> stalkers calling your mother. So if that guy found your mother in Northport, I think Cameron could okay. find you maybe through your agent. That's all I'm saying. Not a great mystery involved here, but please go on. Well, So he saw my picture in a London paper at, coming to London, and he thought, well, she's going to come here. Um She's got a plane ticket. I don't have to pay for one. <laughs> He's always thinking that, Cameron. Always thinking. Yeah. So he came to my apartment and asked me. He played a couple of bars of Les Mis and asked me if I would stay. And I heard two bars, three bars of the uh, French recording. And I said, absolutely. And I knew it was a hit. I Instinctually, I knew it was a hit. And um, so I rehearsed during the day and performed Cradle Will Rock at Night. And um, that's and then when Cradle ended, then I was... Then you could go in earnest into that show. And yes. what's remarkable to me when I think back to Evita, both you and Mandy, who went on to become huge stars, were not at the time that you got cast in that show. Right. I mean, you had done some things, but it wasn't like, you know, you had done some Disney movie and now they were going to put you in this show. Did you audition for Evita? I did. I auditioned for Evita and I didn't want to do it. Because... I didn't like the music at oh. all. Huh. And I thought it was also too high for my range, and I thought it was too high for most women's range. It still is. It's it's an impossible score. Um, but I was told by Kevin Klein and Paul Gemignani that I should audition, so I did audition, and I did finally win the role. And is, Was Kevin a consigliere for you at the time? He was my boyfriend. Of... Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I didn't know Kevin Klein had been an agent in his earlier, <laughs> or a vocal coach. Okay, he was not just a club member he, president. No, right. and he, okay. had, he had done, I don't know what's in on the 20th century with Hal Prince, and they both thought that I should audition for this. So I did, but I, you know, when I listened to the concept album, I just was like, oh, God. I didn't like the music. Huh. It wasn't musical. Um, But I auditioned because I thought I should. And then I won the part. And then I struggled. It was an amazing life and theatrical test for me to sing this role and negotiate the politics of a musical um, with a director 
who can't direct and is a brutal man. And that would be Hal Prince. So how did you get through it? Sheer willpower. Sheer willpower. Because I was not supported. I was abused in rehearsal by Hal Prince. And his stage management were indifferent. It was Beirut from my dressing room to mm. the stage. And then I had to get on stage and play that part when I couldn't sing it. And the only reason I bring up Hal Prince is because I just happened to see something in... So There's a fan that sends me books. And the last book, he, one of the books he sent was Hal Prince's, I don't know, new, new book called, uh, I can't remember, Sense of Occasion. And I said, oh, I wonder if I'm in it. And I looked and... He has totally dismissed my impact in that part, in that production. And I am appalled and shocked at his pettiness, his smallness. And so, but he's given me permission to talk about what I went through in Evita. I've kept my mouth shut to this point. And he actually offered me a doll's life afterwards, but I swore I would never work with this man again. So the great irony, and it is so like life, isn't it, that the thing that put you on the map, sort of, even though there was a huge body of work before and a huge body of work after, I'm sure when you do concerts, people are still praying, hoping. I sing Don't Cry from the Argentine. Right. And, And you do it well. Right? I mean, no one knows, or maybe all of that is part of why you sing it with such passion. And I don't know, but how do you separate out or distill out? How do you not say, I'm sorry, I cannot sing that song? No, again? Well, because I, this was the theatrical test was achieving this part mm-hmm. vocally. Mandy and I luckily spoke the same language. So he was an ally for you. He was a big ally, but we spoke the same language. We went to Juilliard. We had a shorthand on stage as far as acting is concerned. There's no script there. It's all exposition. But Mandy and I figured out how to dramatize the exposition Mm -hmm. so that people could get involved with these characters. My struggle was the vocal, and my struggle was support. There was no support, none who was your teacher at the time? Who helped you find it? Well, there was none. So you did not have oh, well, a vocal I beg your pardon. coach? I beg your pardon. David Vosberg in the chorus. Okay. I went to him in, in uh, because I blew my L.A. opening and I blew my San Francisco opening. And I went to him in L.A. and I said, How, what's the vowel sound for glory? He told me and I said, David, can you help me? And he said, I can't believe you're saying that to me because my partner said to me last night, can you help Patty? So wow. it was divine. It was divine. Yes. So I was determined to not fail in this part. I was determined to play this part as fully as I could as an actor and as a singer. And I think I achieved that. I became the standard bearer. Whenever there were potentially Vitas, they would come to the Broadway production and I'd have to entertain them backstage. I remember <laughs> Marty Webb came backstage. He said, well, yes, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll interpret it as I see fit. And I went, hey, I didn't invite you back here. It's fine, actually. <laughs> do, do. I'm happy to go home. Yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. So what did you do after, what was after Evita? Nothing. What happened? I was offered the Scottish play at Lincoln Center, Sarah Caldwell's production, and I said, haven't I just been playing her for two years? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I went to, actually, I went to the Guthrie because Livio Chule had asked me while I was doing Evita, nine months before the end of my contract, to play Rosalind and As You Like It. And I went back to my roots mm-hmm. and was vilified in the press for doing so. Because because how dare you leave the great white way? Or who do I think I am? More to the point, 
to decide what you want to do? Or who do I think I am that I can do Shakespeare when I just did a musical? Like what I went into Evita as an, a trained actor and came out as a tap dancer. So I could not do that. I could not go into regional theater and do Shakespeare. I couldn't go to the public theater and work with David Mamet. I, I remember my review for Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Frank Rich said something about I, Evita deigned to come in in the second act. It's like, whoa, do you know what I did before Evita? Do you know what I mean? It was like, so, but back then, you know, you, it was difficult to cross over. It was difficult if you were a television actor, if you were a stage actor to go into television. It was difficult... Not so much for a television actor to come to Broadway, always the other way around. That's right. It was difficult for a musical musical person to move into dramatic plays. It may not be that for me anymore. I don't know whether it still holds that way for other actors. But I just went, this is what I do because this is how I've been trained. Yeah. I have this voice, but I also have this training. When did you know that you had a gift? You mentioned an incredible teacher early on in your... In Esther? Your, oh, but, but I was I was really young. Like, you knew it. Yeah. Did you sing in church? No, because it's a Catholic church. I don't remember Nothing. any, I don't right. remember any you singing. You weren't over at the Baptist church getting down. <laughs> no, that was not happening. No, no. And, and um, it was in Latin. And there was a lot of incense. And, I and she still loves incense oh to this my. day. You go to her house, it's yeah. all incense. And they were, you know, I I just counted hats. <laughs> Whatever gets you through that hour and a half, exactly. you got to do it. Somewhere along the line, after Kevin Klein, you fell in love. Um, I, I have to reveal to listeners that her gorgeous husband is just five feet away from us right now <laughs> listening, and he's probably mortified that I'm saying that. But how did you meet the love of your life? We were on a film together, LBJ, the early years, and um, he was in the camera department, and I saw his blue eyes. They're very blue. They're very blue. <laughs> They're very beautiful. <laughs> and that was it. Then it was love at first sight. Then it was love, love, love and yeah, and then he asked me to marry him. Well, I think somebody won a game, a baseball game, and he threw me down on the rug and asked me to marry him. Yeah, ooh. some baseball game. And you had a son. We had a son, Joshua Luke Johnston. Who is beautiful. He's gorgeous. How did you negotiate being a parent and Because being I have stage? a wonderful husband. Because Matt sacrificed his career for mine. Matt was on a crew. Matt was working. Mine's a calling. Matt, we moved to Connecticut. Matt answered in his soul the way he was brought up in Indiana. And we had a farm. And he became Mr. Mom, a brilliant Mr. Mom. And I would commute from Connecticut to the city. And I missed the tying of the shoelaces. I missed the training wheels coming off. How do you feel about that? Not good. Great compromises are made. Yes. and and But... The, he, Josh is a, a love of both my passion and Matt's passion. Matt's passion is sports, and my passion is theater. And Josh has something to talk to both of us about. Are you superstitious? Do you have rituals that are part of every show that yes. you do? What yeah. can you talk about that at all? Well, I can't tell you what I do, but yes, I have. Um, I am superstitious backstage. Very superstitious, and you know. There are certain rules you can't break backstage. And if you do, you have to carry out. What's the penance? Well, whatever the penance. Well, 
in one case, you know, it's turn around, pound it clockwise three times, okay. put over your shoulder, curse, and ask. And do you make other in. people do it too? We made it to Arthur. We made Arthur Lawrence do it. <laughs> Arthur Lawrence, in a technical, mentioned the Scottish play, and we freaked, and we sent him outside. It wasn't a technical. It was before a preview. Okay. We sent him out the nearest door, and he walked through the audience. The audience, and we said, "Turn around!" We yelled at him, "Turn around three times, counterclockwise." He did. I said, "Spit over your shoulder." He did. Curse! Knocked her ass to come back in, and we let him back in. He thought it was ridiculous, but but we felt that there was a curse. You had on, to. You was, had yeah, to. We hadn't opened yet. Do you have a, a memory of an audition, a funny audition story that comes to mind? Maybe it wasn't funny at the time. Well, no, uh, the audition I gave for <laughs> Anything Goes was I had a. Remember Jack Mitchell? Jack Mitchell, okay, Jack Mitchell was this brilliant photographer, mostly of dancers, but he did a lot of theatrical portraits, and he would take my picture every year. Because he loved you? Well, I just asked him to, because, you know, it was the headshots of Jack. And he was paid, of course. But he had the last picture of Ethel Merman taken with bouffant hair, hands on her face, big grin, and I'm that day I'm going to audition for uh, Reno Sweeney. So I went, I got this one. Yeah. So I had a great big picture, and I went in, <laughs> and, and we were doing the first scene, Billy, Billy Crocker. And I had my back to Jerry's axe, and when I turned around, I held up Ethel's face in front of mine with that last picture. And I had probably won me the part, yeah. so I had a sense of humor. Ethel got you the part. God bless her. Wow. Do you still have that photo? Yeah. <gasps> In yeah. the Patti LuPone theatrical collection. Oh, yeah. People don't even understand the kind of curated collection of theater. I have to give mine to the to Boston University. I have to find out who that person is because the, pub, the, the Performing Arts Library only wants my scripts and my scrapbooks. But I have so much stuff. I have to, I have to donate it to someone who will take the entire life yeah. of my career. Yeah, because it's extraordinary. So if you could go back and tell Patty, who was just starting something, what would you tell her? I'd say listen. 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 Because a lot of stuff just went right by because I wasn't listening. You know, I wasn't focused. I wasn't listening. I could listen to you forever. <laughs> I just have to tell you, Patty Lapone, there have been many, many moments in my life where I needed to listen to someone and their voice, and I would listen to you sing, and it has oh, gotten me through a lot, a lot of rough moments. Oh, so to get to tell you in person what you have meant to me and others, but to get to tell you specifically from me that you have been a real beacon and an inspiration. Oh, thank you, Alana. Truly. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. 
Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc.